Well, it's a pleasure for me to be back at Spirit Rock, and I sense as I come here this Monday night, I was here a few weeks ago just to touch base translating for Ajahn Jamnian, so I saw some of you. Um, just what a, a love I have for this community and this place. Um, it feels like home in many, many ways. And for a lot of you that I've known now for, for over the years. And after traveling for a long time in beautiful places, wonderful adventures, I'm very ready to be home. Home is great. I've heard that Monday night over these past half year and more has been in very good hands, that Guy Armstrong was a terrific teacher and other very fine people have come and gone. And I begin to reflect in returning, as we're now partway through the 13th year, of uh, what we are doing together. Um, so tonight I'd like to speak simply in that way. Um, I see Monday nights in particular <clears throat> as a kind of gate, like a Dharma gate, um, which introduces people to the practice of meditation or the practice of awareness and compassion in this particular simple form. I also see it as a place to support the ongoing practice of those who choose to come, even though it's crowded and difficult in some ways, who choose to come over a period of time to listen, to sit together. And this fall, I, I want to do a long series of talks on the discovery of Buddha nature, or discovering Buddha nature, so some way that makes it useful to people who've been sitting for some time. And I also see it as a place that's a preparation for a fuller or more deeper training in meditation and spiritual life that's offered both here or elsewhere from Spirit Rock. It was interesting in traveling that I met people in various countries I visited who had heard about Spirit Rock in monasteries of Asia and meditation centers in Europe and India um, and were asking questions like, what's happening to practice in Buddhism in the West? What, do you, what are you all doing at Spirit Rock? <laughs> and I see it myself most fundamentally as a place to remember what we most deeply value, to listen to our bodies and our hearts, and to reawaken within us that understanding of that which is sacred, which is perhaps the same task as in a traditional monastery of monks and nuns, only we're not that. We're this strange hybrid of lay people with a deep spiritual interest. To reawaken the connection to the sacred. There's an old story about a, a young man who visited a village one day and in the village observed a sage who lived there, a wise man, fetching water from the village well. The old man went over to the well and put the wooden bucket that was on a rope down into the water, threw it down, and then pulled it out, as one did, hand over hand, kind of heavy, 
and poured the water. The young man disappeared and came back a day or two later and returned with a wooden pulley and a gear for turning it to really make it work easily. And he approached the uh, old man the day later and showed him this is how it works, how you can put the gear on and pull the water up so much more easily. You put the rope over this wheel and draw a crank on the handle. And the old man looked at it for a while quietly and then he said, you know, I don't think I want to use it. He said, for I'm afraid if I install a device even like this, my mind will start thinking itself clever. And with a clever mind, I may no longer put my heart into what I'm doing. Instead, my hands and wrists alone will start to do the work. And if my heart and whole body are not in the work, my work will become without joy, joyless. And when my work is joyless, how do you think the water will taste? <laughs> One of the most visible and painful characteristics of modern technological society that we live in is the absence of the sacred. And the results of this are obvious and grave consequences. Ecological destruction, environmental destruction, because we don't see the sacredness of the trees and the rivers. At its worst, a modern medicine that can be very effective, but if you're in the realm of birth or dying or some of the other kinds of sicknesses, um, you can encounter a medicine without a healing spirit. At its worst, the commodification of things, even children who become primarily viewed in certain large circles as consumers. What are the products we can now sell to our children? Racism and the denigration of those different than ourselves. And a, an atmosphere of social and political conversation that is primarily about money and things. The sabbatical, which I just had the privilege of being on for these, this half of a year, was wonderful. It was restful and nourishing. And I didn't do much. I didn't even sit in meditation very much just lived simply with my family, without a phone, no answering machine, no telephone to answer it for, no car, we mostly walked places. Uh, periodically, because I was in Thailand and Bali and places in Asia, I would run into people who'd say, oh, are you Jack Cornfield?" <laughs> Sometimes I'd say, oh no, I left him back in California, thank you. <laughs> it was just time off, right? And we traveled um, to Laos and Thailand and chose, and Bali, to live in the simple village way um, and chose those as societies where there was still some value of the spirit. But what was apparent in Southeast Asia and perhaps many other parts of the world was that they are in the midst of furious modernization and development. 
Bangkok has probably more cars than Los Angeles now, and certainly more smog, and more big buildings, and more everything happening, and less beauty, and less ease, and less of the spirit that used to inhabit that country. It's interesting, the word Bangkok, it's, it's, it's a word in Thai, Grunthep, means the same as Los Angeles, city of the angels. Um, and I don't know where the angels are, but they need them. Um, the level of building, of development, of roads, of infrastructure, of factories, the number of cell phones that you see in the lobby of fancy hotels in Denpasar, in Bali, or in Bangkok, is incredible. And uh, even in Bali, the roads, because there's this huge tourist influx with a lot of money, the roads, these tiny little winding roads around the volcanoes and so forth, are now getting filled with cars and motorcycles and lots of cars. And what was interesting, it wasn't the tourists alone who were driving it, it was all these Balinese with their new Toyota, you know, pickup or whatever, dressed in beautiful silks on their way to some temple ceremony. And this combination of the old and the new. I knew something was happening when I went uh, to one of the great temples um, outside of Ubud in Bali to bring a friend. We were showing him around near where we had lived. And the temple, as they often are, was empty in the daytime. It's a place where people gather for certain sacred occasions, and the rest of the time it's, it's very quiet. We looked around at the beautiful carvings, fantastic kind of uh, demons that you pass through into the gates of the temple and the carvings of the gods and <coughs> statues and so forth. But it was very quiet. My friend said, well, do they still really use this temple? I said, oh, yes, yes, absolutely. You know, for different ceremonies and times. And as I looked around, I saw in the far courtyard about 80 or 90 people dressed in white going up and down, bowing just behind this wall. I could just see their heads. And I said, there's probably some ceremony there now. Let's go and take a look. And because the Balinese welcome visitors into their sacred ceremonies. So we went out one gate and walked around to this other big, huge hall part of the temple through the gates. And as we went in, there was this crowd of 80, 90, 100 people dressed mostly in white. Um, and as I walked in further, I heard the music, which seemed, I guess it was Michael Jackson. <laughs> and then I discovered that it was an aerobics class <laughs> for the merchants and the people of that town who were all getting their exercise. And I went, oh God, is it, you know, is this what's happening to the world? But later on in our trip, as we traveled, we traveled to a number of places, went to India and came back through Europe and New York, whatever. We were in the taxi of some person from uh, Asia, anyway, and going through these city streets. And um, he was furiously honking the horn and driving around things in kind of a slightly um, manic way, the, you know, the spirit of taxi drivers worldwide was with him. And, um, but he was honking the horn a lot, as, as also happens often, and, and especially driving in India and such places. And my wife said to him at some point, you know, why do you keep honking the horn? She was just curious. Is it, you know, that you really want to get people out of the way so, you know, you can 
get us there faster? What, what, what keeps you doing that? And he said, oh no, he said, I don't honk the horn to kind of, um, you know, try and get through the traffic or something. I honk the horn at every time I come to an intersection to let the gods know that I've come <laughs> so that they can then clear a path so no one will be hurt. <laughs> oh. So that's somehow where we are. We're in our cars, right? And we're wondering what happened to the gods, right? Me. The village that we lived in, Bali, which was a little ways outside of Ubud, um, the people that we lived with, we lived in a Balinese compound with a family and so forth, still spent probably 25% of their waking hours doing sacred ritual. Offerings, prayers, blessings, entering the temple, leaving the temple, making music for the gods, dancing for the gods. And uh, there was a big temple festival in a vi couple of villages over from where we lived um, sometime after we got there. And the whole of our village um, it was an important temple right along the river, and the gods of the river are supposed to be really honored if you live near that river. So they rang the, the big drum at the uh, temple one day, and there had been days and days and days of preparation. And then they took the barong, which is kind of the village dragon that cares for the, the spirit, protects the spirit of the village from the two main temples at either end of the village. Um, and 2,000 people, almost everyone in the village, came out, the children, the adults, the old people, and they were dressed, the Bonnie's people know how to dress, the most gorgeous batiks and silks and gold and whatever, and we all spent the rest of the day walking the dragon over to the other village to honor that temple, and then when they got there, all these other dragons from all the villages came around. The dragons danced, and then the people danced, and it went on for three days and nights of dancing, not for one another, but to honor the gods. It was so beautiful. We went to Laos as well as Thailand, and in part to went to be in old Asia, because Laos is not yet developed very much. It has a kind of benign socialist government. And in the old capital of Luang Prabang in the mountains, which is the, the old capital of the country, it has, the Mekong River goes around, it almost makes it an island, and there's this hill with a palace and a temple at the top, and these French colonial-type buildings around the bottom of it. The whole city is 8,000 people. It's like smaller than San Anselmo. And you could walk down the middle of the street mostly. There weren't many cars, and TV had just come. And all the men that you met had been in the monastery. Everybody still went through the old rituals. When they matured, everyone who turned 20 became a monk. And many of the women had been nuns. and um, It was still alive there. My friend Ajahn Sumedho went to a funeral on the border of Laos. I ran into him in Thailand, and he said, yes, for this famous teacher, we went to this old forest monastery, and thousands of monks came from the caves and the forest monasteries to pay their last respects, so they were still there. But much of it is lost, going very quickly. The level of TV, um, you know, you go into the 
family compounds in Thailand or even in Bali now, and where people used to sit out and talk to one another in the evenings, there's this blue glow in like five or six of the little houses in the compound, and every little part of the family has their own TV and it's turned on to their own channel. And it's sitcoms, Asian sitcoms. You know how bad sitcoms are in America. I mean, you know, they can be amusing when you're desperate, but... Um, and uh, violence and... Um, all, and this push to become like modern Asia, like Hong Kong or Japan or South Korea or something. The village that we settled in in Thailand was way in the south by the ocean. We stayed with some friends and it's quite lovely. And it too had begun to modernize. There were some new inns for people to stay by the water and shops. And I noticed in our village in southern Thailand that in the middle of this village there had been, there still was, this very large spreading Bodhi tree, a tree like the one that the Buddha was enlightened under in India. And they are planted around all of Buddhist Asia as uh, symbols of the sacred tree of awakening. And this particular tree, which had obviously been in the center of the village for hundred or hundreds of years, um, now someone had built a new shop and the tree was kind of near where the shop was, right next to where the shop was built, and they kind of built an alcove in the shop to, so they didn't cut the tree down, but the shop was all around it, right? And tourist goods were being sold and there was this big Bodhi tree. And I looked closely at the tree and it still had these old fading ribbons from the ceremonies that people will do to honor the possibility of enlightenment in the midst of their community or to make offerings. So I kind of looked at that and I became interested in this tree and I would go for my walks down the beach in the morning and uh, one morning I walked by the tree kind of up on the road and I noticed there was a little painted can there and there were fresh sticks of incense that were burning and fresh flowers. Then I went by each morning, I began to watch the tree and noticed every morning that someone or ones, even though the tree seemed forgotten, was going there in the old way and paying their respects and lighting incense and leaving the flowers. Um, as if to say, even though we've modernized our village and there's this little alcove left for the tree in the, in the store here, we haven't forgotten you. And I believe, because it is really who we are, that the tree will never be forgotten. It can be forgotten for a while, you've probably noticed that. But not fundamentally, that this sacred tree is in our midst. And sometime or other, we all remember it. Maybe it's the time of birth or death or great changes that come in life to all of us, as they inevitably will. But in those moments, we remember the sacred tree. Black Elk, the Native American visionary medicine man, he saw it in his visioning on Harney Peak. He said he saw the one great tree of life which holds up every part of life. In the center of the world, wide as daylight and as starlight, 
sheltering all the children of the Great Spirit, and reminded those who he spoke to that we must nourish the root of this sacred tree, that it may continue to leaf and bloom and fill with singing birds. Perhaps we could say that this image of the sacred tree and that incense and flowers that were left there where it wasn't forgotten is really the same as our coming together, sitting together. It's a reminder to us and perhaps it raises a question for us as well. On what do we base our life? And what do we trust most deeply? Development? Money? Electricity? I'll say this after the blackout, my luggage still hasn't come in. I flew in a couple nights ago and spent a good part of the night at Denver Airport and then was routed into Oakland, minus my luggage. So what do you trust? Where is our trust? Gain and loss? Or something deeper? In the course of this time away, I also uh, spent a bit of time in Dharamsala at the Western Buddhist teachers meeting with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. There were about 30 of us from around the world and a small party of famous Tibetan lamas. And there were all these questions about Buddhism and spiritual life, uh, the forms that it might take in the Western world, and whether Western teachers and lamas would hold the same role as masters in Asia where there's people come in and they bow and or they meditate and they visualize the master in front of them as the Buddha himself or herself and make all these offerings and kind of looked around the room at this motley crew of Western teachers and said, well, which one of you is going to kind of announce yourself as the next Buddha? And it just didn't fit somehow, you know. And so there were these questions, well, how should we do it? How should we make this ancient tradition and practice work and come alive in the West. And of course, although they were nervous a little, don't change it too much, um, the Dalai Lama, as always, is so gracious and wise. He said, you know, in the end we can't tell you. We don't know. And you will have to figure it out. We don't know. And what was implied in his saying that very, very directly is, you, he said, you must find the way is this, underneath that was the sense that I must trust you and I do trust you. I trust you to take what is precious and to value it as you value the sacred life and bring it to your own cities, to your own families, to your own communities and find your way. What do we trust? The most important thing many of these teachers spoke about in their own work and teaching, that they had to communicate to others, was the quality of trust, of faith, faith in spiritual life itself, the trust or the faith that begins spiritual practice and that ends it. In a world of so much change, what is trustworthy? 
it changes all the time, this world that we know of sights and sounds and gain and loss and praise and blame. This is from the Tao Te Ching. The Tao, the Dharma. The Tao gives birth to all things and all beings, nourishes them, maintains them, cares for them, comforts them, protects them, and then takes them back to itself, creating without possessing, acting without expecting, guiding without interfering. The master is one who trusts the Tao. She is good to people who are good. She is also good to people who aren't good. This is true goodness. She trusts people who are trustworthy. She also trusts people who aren't trustworthy. This is true trust. She who is centered in the Tao can go where she wishes without danger. She perceives the universal harmony even amidst great pain because she has found the Tao in her heart. What is trustworthy is to touch that underlying spirit that moves all things, that's created in all things. And this trust or faith is not just what might be initially called blind faith, unexamined, I've been told there's something trustworthy, I should believe it. Nor is it even that tentative faith well, it does seem right to me. I've reflected, I've looked a little bit. But it can become for us, if we look deeply, what is called verified faith, that inner connection to the mystery that is always here, that is what we are. It's not far away as Dogen, then Master Dogen said, it is nearer than near. You know how I like to read from this book, Children's Letters to God, from like second grade Sunday school? Reminders of the mystery. Dear God, we're going on vacation for two weeks Friday, so we won't be in church. I hope you will be there when we get back. When do you take your vacation? <laughs> Goodbye, Donnie. Dear God, what is it like when you die? Nobody will tell me. I just want to know. I don't want to do it. Your, your friend, Mike. Dear God, are you real? Some people don't not believe it. If you are, you better do something quick. Harry and Anne. Dear God, I wrote you before. Do you remember? Well, I did what I promised but you did not send me the horse yet. What about it, Lewis? <laughs> Dear God, do you get your angels to do all the work? Mommy says we are her angels, and then we have to do everything she asks. What is this mystery, this spirit that we can remember or awaken to? 
Let me tell you a couple of stories about a British scientist who I know, whom, whom I know, named Rupert Sheldrake, um, whose work is both profound and delightful. And Rupert, who was a biologist by training, um, has written and described the process of life in the language that he, he calls of morphic resonance, of life coming out of consciousness itself. Um, all kinds of wonderful things that he's written about. But he wrote recently, I guess in the last couple of years, a book that became particularly popular in England entitled something like Seven Experiments You Can Perform at Home That Could Change the World. And uh, these were experiments with that which science hasn't yet noticed, but that's all around us. One of them, I think, had to do with homing pigeons, and I don't remember that. But anyway, because it was quite popular, the BBC decided to do a show on Rupert's experiments and to try a couple of them to see what would happen. And so he set them up and they filmed them. And again, it was quite popular in England. Um, the first of these seven experiments that I remember anyway was one about dogs and their owners. And the hypothesis was this, that there were many people who reported kind of as just a, you know, anecdotally that their dogs knew when they were coming home and that they would be there wagging their tail. Not only would they be there wagging their tail when, you know, they might have heard the car, that particular sound of that car down the block, but um, somebody might be home with the dog and uh, half an hour before the car pulled up, the dog would get up and walk over the door and kind of sniff and wag its tail like waiting for that person to come home and sure enough, you know, within half an hour that person would come home as if somehow the dogs knew when their, I won't call them their owner, when their friend was going to come home. <laughs> so the experiment that Rupert had set up was this. He had someone who felt they had this kind of connection with their dog and admittedly it has to be done a number of times. And the BBC set up their cameras first in this person's home, met them, introduced the person, you know, and how BBC does it in this nice formal British accent, and this is the dog, and you're introduced <laughs> to it, kind of lovely. And then they, they put two cameras simultaneously with little, little um, timers underneath, split screen, and they took the man of the house in this particular case, and they drove him 200 miles all the way across England and brought him to this lovely country estate, told him to put his things in the dresser in the bedroom, showed all of this, and then he was sitting there and he went to sleep for the night and the next day was sitting in the drawing room by a nice fireplace, sipping sherry or whatever it was, you know, just kind of enjoying himself. And at some time in that next 24 hours, he would receive a call. There was a phone call there, a phone there. Um, he didn't know what time it would be, um, telling him that he should pack his bags. It was time for him to go directly home. Meanwhile, the camera was also in the dog. And the dog was just lying there all day long. And then the phone rang 200 miles away, and the man picked it up and said, well, this is, you know, so-and-so from the BBC. Um, it's now 4.28, and we've decided it's time for you to go home, so please pack your things and, you know, get in, get in your car and start home. And you see this other half of the screen, and there's the dog, and it's sleeping. And the phone rings, and he just, the conversation begins just five or ten seconds. Right? And ten seconds into the conversation, the dog, who's been sleeping all day long, lifts its head up, stands up, kind of shakes itself, goes over to the door and starts wagging its tail and looking. 
The second of these experiments, <laughs> seven experiments you can perform at home that could change the world, um, was not actually done at home, but it was done in one of the BBC theaters, in which they took out the back wall, uh, part of the back wall, just um, maybe six feet of it or so, and put in a one-way mirror so that you could look at the back of the people who were watching a theater production. And then they asked some play to come on and open the seating for a few hundred people to sit and watch some play at BBC. They took out of the line of people waiting for the play at random five people who um, were willing to engage in a little experiment during the play, didn't know much about it. And then they asked in the line, is there anyone here who has a black belt in martial arts? I'm thinking that this person might be particularly interesting. Yes, somebody did in karate or whatever. And they took these six people and seated them in six chairs behind the one-way mirror, looking into the room at the back of the heads of all these people during the theater production. And they placed a camera filming the room during this whole time. And then they instructed these six people to look, to stare very hard at the back of six people in the audience. Each was assigned one person, just at random, this seat, that seat, that seat. You stare at that person, and you stare at that one. And for the entire theater performance, you stare at them, and you say in your mind, you know, turn around, pay attention, I want to show you something, or something to get their attention. You really look at them. And that's why they picked the martial artist. They thought somehow that he might know how to really stare at someone. <laughs> So they sat during the performance. No one could see them, and this was quite random. People were just picked, and they filmed it. And then they did an analysis of the film afterward, again, for the BBC show. Um, and they showed it on the television. And it turned out that the people who were being stared at turned around and looked behind them as if someone were looking at them three times more than everybody else in the audience. So. <laughs> it's not really that surprising, is it? I mean, how did you get into this body? Where, where do you think you came from? What makes, I mean, we can talk about, you know, wood and metal and cloth and all these kind of physical things, including the earth and air and fire and water, the elements of, that make up this body, but how about consciousness? How about the fact that we see and hear and smell and think and feel? Who are we really? Little kids remember. These are these nice letters to God. They talk very personally, as if God were around somewhere to talk to. Who are we? Maybe we're just sunlight. You know, without chlorophyll, without that extraordinary capacity of leaves, to drink sunlight and turn it into sugar, which then gets eaten by various other animals and plants, you know, fertilizes, makes the soil on which all the things that we eat and live grows. Without sunlight, we wouldn't exist. In a way, our bodies are sunlight. They're sunlight captured in water and minerals together. And, you know, whether it's true or not, I hope it is that they found some life on Mars. And three new planets already this year? No. Um, if you had um, 
if you could shrink our galaxy, no, excuse me, if you could shrink our solar system all the way out to the planet Pluto, our huge, vast solar system, down to the size of a baseball, okay? So our solar system is now the size of a baseball. How big do you think our galaxy would be? Somebody guess. Size of this room? Size of this room? Bigger. Size of the Earth. So, someone said the size of the Earth. Someone else? Bigger than the size <coughs> of the solar system. No, those are, those are too big. It would be not quite the size of the Earth. It would be the size of North America. Our solar system is like one, um, is like one baseball. And our galaxy is then the size of all. Imagine putting one baseball like in Kansas City, right, in the middle. And the rest of our galaxy would be the size of the North American continent. In the last six months, the Hubble telescope has discovered 40 billion new galaxies. So probably out there, <laughs> there is the same thing happening as there was on Mars and here. There is this amazing quality of consciousness knowing itself coming out of this great sea of being. When we remember we are not human beings having spiritual experiences, but spiritual beings having human experiences, <laughs> then everything becomes workable. Our lessons, our homework, our sorrows make sense to us. Our beauty, the preciousness of each unique day and each unique form of being. When we remember this mystery, we sense a connection, a connectedness in all things. And we listen and see the world from the values of the heart. Spirit Rock is at its best in the ancient tradition of forest monasteries or temples that are out somewhere in nature, valleys, trees, streams. I was in these beautiful forest monasteries again in Thailand, thick jungles with these paths through them and ancient trees that you would sit underneath. And the tradition of these monasteries and temples is a place to remember to reawaken to that mystery, to the life of the heart or the life of the spirit. A place to remind ourselves of this mystery and then to settle into the Tao, into the graciousness that is possible for our hearts even in the midst of suffering. Just as the four great oceans have but one taste, the taste of salt, so said the Buddha, there is but one taste in all the teachings of the Dharma, in all of the years of teaching I've done, and that taste is the taste of the freedom of the heart, of liberation, the sure heart's release, he called it. All of these teachings and practices in sacred places are to remind us of this freedom. How do we remember? How do we awaken? Stay connected with that which is sacred in such busy times. Find a freedom for our hearts. Among many practices, there are three essential or simple principles, especially of 
the, the, that which is taught here, trainings. The first to keep us connected with this mystery of life and that which is sacred is the training of compassion, compassionate action in particular. And this training means changing our heart's intention to one of compassion, that how we speak and act, our words and deeds, which have a great power, will come from the intention to help rather than harm. And you could say, well, that's kind of simple, basic spiritual truth everywhere, or it might be considered just basic virtue, or kindness, or morality even. But more deeply, it comes from an understanding of the sacred, that it's us that we are treating with our words and our actions. The trees, the rocks, the rivers, and the highways are all us. As Kabir, the Indian mystic, writes, are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. I'm not far away. You don't steal in the temple, generally. You don't steal from your family, do you? We hope. And then all of a sudden you discover it's all the temple. And it's all our family. So the first of these trainings of awakening the sacred is compassionate action. Seeing that we are it together, it's us. And therefore, may my words and deeds help us rather than harm. That is one of the awakenings to the sacred. The second is stillness. Taking the time to stop. I will feel very fortunate in having time for sabbatical, but vacation, even a day off, the need that we all have to breathe in and breathe out, the Sabbath. Remember, I know when I was a kid growing up, especially on the East Coast, in Massachusetts, they used to have the blue laws, they called them, <laughs> which meant that everything shut down on Sunday. And you couldn't buy anything. There was no buying and selling, no 24-hour supermarkets, no 24-hour banking, no 24-hour stockbrokers, or whatever it happens to be. There was a day where we stopped doing business and just stayed where we were, talked to one another, walked around. People used to actually go for walks on Sunday. Remember that? Maybe you'd go for a drive, something special. Stillness the need that each being has to take the time through ritual, through walking in nature, walking in the woods, through sitting in stillness, <coughs> through the ritual of holding hands or offering a blessing at the beginning of a meal. But not just the outer stillness to remember who we are, but that inner training that meditation can offer to us to train the heart's capacity to listen deeply, 
to deepen this quality of mindfulness or sacred presence. For the last 22 or 23 years, we've offered hundreds and hundreds of retreats. People have come for a weekend or 10 days or a month or three months. And mostly what they are is a place for us to be still. Sit in meditation for an hour, walk for an hour, sit again for half an hour, and just learn to listen. <coughs> the invitation from the Buddha is this. He said, my friends, there is a most wonderful and simple way for living beings to realize purification, overcome grief and sorrow and pain and anxiety, travel the true path, realize freedom. What is this way? It is the establishment of presence or mindfulness. My friends, find a place that is still or silent, under a tree, in a quiet place, in a room, and seat yourself there, holding your body upright, establishing the quality of mindfulness or presence. And begin simply with the breath, knowing I'm breathing in a long breath or a short breath. I breathe in a breath and calm my mind. I breathe out a breath and calm my body. And then begin to pay attention, he goes on. Be aware of when the mind is entangled in desiring or fear or anger. This is the mind of desire, of fear or anger. Be aware when the mind is free. This is a mind releasing of liberation, of love, of spaciousness. And through this simple quality of sacred attention to breath and body, feelings and mind, you will learn freedom. In bullfighting, which I don't know very much about, but I read this in Rachel Remen's wonderful new book, Kitchen Table Wisdom. Um, in bullfighting, there's a place in the bullring where the bull feels safe. If he can reach this place, he stops running and can gather his strength. He's no longer afraid. From the point of view of the matador, this place is a problem for him. And it is part of his job to keep the bull from going there too often to know where this sanctuary is because it's different for every bull and make sure the bull cannot occupy this place of wholeness. In bullfighting, this safe place is called the carencia. And for human beings, there is also a carencia. Often it is a familiar place that has been lost and not noticed until a time of crisis arises. Sometimes it comes to us simply when we sit still and listen. But when we find it, we realize this is a safe place. When a person finds their carencia, they are calm and peaceful, wise. In full view of the matador, they've gathered their strength around them. The inner silence this inner resting place is more secure than anything else we could do. 
to sit is to remember that place, to find that stillness, to listen. And in this stillness, we remember who we really are. And that is the third of these fundamental principles. Compassionate action, seeing the sacred in our words and deeds. Inner stillness, stopping running around quite so much and taking the time to listen, to reconnect with our hearts. And the third, the last essential training in awakening, is discovering a shift of identity that within this stillness we can let go of the body of fear, the small sense of self, all the judgments and needs and thoughts and entanglement, they come and go but rest in some greater spaciousness, what Ajahn Jamnian called seeing with the eyes of wisdom, or Ajahn Chah, my teacher, described as resting in the knowing, in the one who knows. It's that moment just, ah, now I remember, it's okay. No matter what happens, now I remember it's all right. This one who knows, this innate wisdom knows that no matter what, everything will change. It's all changing. We know that. <coughs> this one who knows in us recognizes that birth and death, gain and loss, praise and blame, joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain, they are interwoven. They cannot be separated. Who has gain without loss? who has pleasure without pain or praise without blame. The one who knows sees that the patterns of our words and deeds create our world, that how we act, we will live in that way again and again. And the one who knows, if we listen, can touch that place of the deathless, of that truth which is greater than all these changing conditions of that which is timeless. At the teacher meetings in Dharamsala, I heard this story from uh, Tetsugan Sensei, the Zen teacher in New York, and Mahagosananda, the Cambodian patriarch, of their peace marches across Cambodia and Vietnam every year through the mountains and Cambodia for the last five years in the place of the worst fighting. And one of the people on this year's Peach March was a man that Tetsigan had ordained as a peacemaker priest. He'd been a Vietnam veteran and struggled a great deal after the war. I think he'd even been, been homeless for a while. And in this ordination of the peacemaker priest, he'd given him a beautiful bell to ring, a bell of the spirit that he would take in his work throughout the world. man's name is Claude Thomas. So they walked in the heat through the mountains of Cambodia and Vietnam, a whole line of monks and nuns and people chanting for peace, and everyone would come out from the villages and bow to them, and even the soldiers would come and put their rifles down as they walked by, but not all of them. And as they were walking near the Vietnam border, there were some soldiers who came, but they held their rifles up even though they acknowledged the march and I think appreciated it. And so apparently Cloud, 
in his role as priest with his bell and part of the march, went over to one of these soldiers and looked at him and said, how are you sleeping? Which is the kind of question that a vet knows how to ask another soldier. He said, not well, of course, after all that I've seen. And they talked for a while. And then this man looked at me and said, God, that's such a beautiful bell that you have to ring. I would do anything to have a bell like that. I really loved it. And Claude looked at him and he said, I'll give you this bell for your gun. You give me your rifle and I'll give you this bell, I'll give you my bell. The man looked at him and he really wanted the bell. He said, I can't do it. My officer is over there and I'm on duty. I cannot give up my gun. Claude looked back at him and he said, well, he said, I'll give you this bell for the bullets in the chambers of your gun. You give me the bullets and I will give you the bell. The man opened his gun and emptied out all the bullets and handed them to Claude. And Claude gave them the bell from his ordination. I heard that story. I was really amazed and touched by it. This is a moment of grace, of knowing in the midst of difficulty that we really are connected, that we are one, that it is our brothers and sisters. But it doesn't have to be that dramatic. A few days ago, at the 20th anniversary of our center in the East Coast of IMS, I was sitting around with Ramdas. He was telling the story of being at the luncheon that I, I was sorry to have missed. Remember when Gorbachev came to town last year, and there was those those meetings um, about uh, that he held this foundation about changing the world for the better, and it was Gorbachev and. George Bush and Maggie Thatcher and Secretary of State George Shultz and all these people. Well, it was a big luncheon, Ramdas was describing the luncheon they had. And the luncheon speaker was Thich Nhat Hanh, who has, as you know, just an astonishing presence. And Thich Nhat Hanh got up there and talked for a little bit and then asked everyone in the luncheon to pick up the oranges that were on the bowls in their table. And he led an eating meditation, first peeling the orange. And Ramdas was grinning as he told this story. He said, they didn't know what hit them. He said, here's Maggie Thatcher and George Schultz and George Bush all peeling the oranges. You know, and what's beautiful about it is that it was a moment of innocence that they all shared. It was a moment of peeling the orange. Thich Nhat Hanh has this amazing presence that gets you back to the simplest things. I remember when Thich Nhat Hanh first came to San Francisco Zen Center and Dick Baker was still the uh, Roshi there and he described Thich Nhat Hanh in a phrase. He said, this is a quite remarkable man. And um, someone said, well, how would you describe him? And he said, well, he's a cross between a cloud, a snail, and a piece of heavy machinery. <laughs> I thought was a lovely description. Yeah. And somehow in this room of all these people doing important things and talking about important things, they peeled the orange together. So it's not just that moment in the peace march in Cambodia that's so extraordinary, but it's the moment when you take a bite out of an apple when you eat your breakfast cereal, your granola or whatever you happen to eat for breakfast, and 
crunch the wheat and the nuts and the things that are in it. It's the moment of looking in the eyes of the person that you live with or work with that you've been with so long you've forgotten to look at again. It's the power of this moment of sacred presence to bow to what is so and rest in this great wisdom of the heart, even in the face of the sorrows. And this is the place of the Buddha within you, our own true home. And it's why we come together to practice. Reflect, if you will, for a minute as I end, on your own life. What is it that reminds you of this mystery? You know, is it your dog wagging its tail before you come home? Then close your eyes for a minute and just remember what reminds you of the mystery. What most nourishes your heart? Walks in nature, time alone, listening to music, time with a beloved friend, sitting still and just breathing. And in the midst of the greatest difficulties of your life now, today as it is, can you imagine resting in the one who knows, in ease and graciousness and compassion? I'm very happy to be back here to share with many people the creation of this as a sacred space and simply to come together and remind one another of the Tao, of the way, and of the importance of listening with that kind of respect, presence. <laughs>